You're listening to All The Best. I'm Danny Stewart. This week, we're sharing more stories produced by Melbourne Uni audio journalism students as part of a special collaboration with the Science Gallery. Each student is sharing their take on the theme, Breaking the Binary. In our first story, the journey to marriage for an interfaith couple raises the question of what people should endure for love. What made you want to marry each other? I'm thinking. (laughs) Well, I guess uh, I had dated in the past and somehow he felt very sincere and honest. I had not dated in the past and I had no benchmark to go by. (laughs) (laughs) How long have you been together? Uh, 91. 91 years. Let's talk about what it was like trying to get married. Marriage was not on the card. In India, men actually don't get married so early. It's the girls and from Muslim families. Boys from Hindu houses don't get married until they've like kind of settled in uh, their jobs for at least about four or five years. And then Dado, when the topic of marriage came around, how did your family react to it? Not well, obviously. Because uh, it was with the Muslim. And I think for many people in that time, it could be anybody but a Muslim. All because the previous generations had unfortunately seen partition. And there was the bias that was there. Back in 1947, when British India was divided to form independent Pakistan and India, Millions of Muslims and Hindus had to leave their families and ancestral homes and relocate to the country where their religion would be more tolerated. It was a massive refugee crisis, and people witnessed unbelievable acts of violence during this time. Even today, there's a strained relationship between Hindus and Muslims in India, and communal violence is rampant in the country. More than parental disapproval, I think it was social criticism that, uh, you know, we are all scared of. And then you were supposed to get married earlier than you actually did, right? Yeah, we actually registered our marriage in 1994. Obviously, because I belong to a Muslim community and because I was in a Muslim area, somebody had obviously seen it or the word had gone around. So they started to make some calls to my dad to say that uh, we are not going to let this marriage happen. And if this marriage goes through, then your other two children will not have a very nice whatever. So they kind of threatened. So my mom, one day before the wedding, she left. So I didn't go to the registrar's office. She didn't go on the day of her wedding. Can you believe it? Her best friend remembers it clearly. (laughs) Didn't show up for the wedding. She didn't show up. There was a situation of, I think your father had already got into the train in Delhi. He didn't even know she was not coming to the wedding as far as I can remember. He turned up at the station in Hyderabad and then that was when he, I think he got to know that she was not planning to... She was, he was being ditched at the altar. I mean, that I thought was only a phrase. But in that case, it was actually true. What, what was your reaction then? Uh, we travelled to Hyderabad. All is good. And suddenly we realised that he... No, but I didn't read. And then what happened? You guys stayed together? No, for almost a year, we I, I don't think we spoke because he had just kind of 
know, no, and you also have to appreciate that this is 94. Social media, media, nothing was there. Internet was not there. I think uh, emails had just about begun to come in. And then during that time when you were off, did you think it would be easier to choose someone from your own religion? Yeah, yeah I did. Because my, my family did. And I was like too fed up of this entire thing. Three, four years of this constant disapproval. I said, okay, to hell with him. And then now... You'll never guess what got my parents back together. His dog died. <coughs> and then he called me and he was crying. And so I didn't hear who had died. He kept saying somebody had died. And I was like, what? Somebody died? What? And he was crying. <laughs> and then when he told me the dog died, I was like, okay, okay. But even then, by that time, I think I had got kind of verbally engaged to somebody. You know, I never took it seriously. I didn't think she'd go through with all that. I always felt they'd get back together, probably. Your mother gets what she wants, if you've not realized that. How much basis do you think there is when people say Hindus and Muslims are fundamentally different and that's why they shouldn't get married? No, no difference at all. It is the human values that matter. I'm getting married to a good human being. Religion is only as important as you make it to be. Whatever problems they went through during that era of trying to get married, they've had a great marriage. That story was produced by Ania Tandon. Mel Chun was the supervising producer. In our next story, T. Yang explores the way K-pop artists are breaking down gender binaries in response to artists who do the same. That's the voices of people screaming out Lao Po, a Chinese word commonly used by husbands to call their wives. But the person being called out is a male celebrity. In my memory, the first time I knew him was on a TV show. He was wearing long hair, so I think she like, uh, no, sorry, he like a girl. He was so different from all the boys I have met before. Then I started to search about him online. And to my surprise, many people had the same idea as mine, thinking that he looks like a female, a girl. She's very pretty and writing fanfictions about him. In these works, he was portrayed as a female, so that's why I think he looks more like a girl, and started to call him my wife. That's Qiang Wang, a fan sharing her experience of Ni Su. In Chinese fandom culture, Ni Su is a group of people breaking down gender binaries and amplifying the feminine characteristics of men while emphasizing the masculine characteristics of women. The main reason I knew Su Yang was because of his personality. At first, I thought that someone like him who plays uh, like heavy metal music or rock and roll, you know, might be fierce, but after seeing him in person, I found that he was much gentler than I had expected. In fact, when I meet Su, I care much about the sense of intimacy that the man gives. You know, this is where obtained from men. 
He once makes me feel our love is mutual, so I can't help once more. Nisu builds a like a bridge, a connection between us. As I often watch videos online or hear from my friends when we talking our idols or their idols, I find that made celebrities pay more attention to their appearance now. Many K-pop stands also have to prove that Jungwoo can fit any girl concept thanks to his unisex visual. Other times, even when Jungwoo takes down the wig and feminine makeup, he still looks extremely pretty. Even a huge number of fangirls admitted that Jungwoo is far more gorgeous and looks more like a girl than them. Chang says these videos also contribute to Nisu culture. And I sometimes feel Nisu is like a spell. We alter it to shape the male celebrity in a way we admire. Chang Wang is not the only fan that has the experience of Nisu. Jia Yi Wang. Another Nisu fan has different ideas. I think I'm doing a counter-attack. Now, everyone says that it's hard to give girls some appearance or age difference. But I think it's more like a rebellion. Men always judge female celebrities, giving them anxieties about age or looks. I wonder if I could do the same thing to male celebrities. In the old days, Most female fans give the impression that they would admire male celebrities because they were handsome or strong, with so-called masculine characteristics. But the main reason behind it is that society imposed them on women, telling female fans they should admire men like that. By Nisu, we aim to break it. This time, we're in a dominant position. With Nisu being more popular among fans, will it become a trend in the future? 我觉得它会进化，大家开始不只有一个视角了，这是一个好的开始。泥塑 will continue developing. Everyone starts to look at things not only from one single perspective now. It's a good start. 泥塑 is like a transitional phase. Maybe in the future, it will be replaced by something else that can lead the world to become more open and inclusive. I don't think the biological gender is important to me anymore. I have my own criterion, and I don't think I have a specific sexual orientation. As long as it fits with the characteristics I like, I don't think any gender matters. For me, the gender binaries are gone. That story was produced by T. Yang Zhang. With supervising production by me, I'm Danny Stewart, and you're listening to All the Best. All the Best is a great place to learn the art of audio storytelling. Never made a story before? No problem. No experience is required. If you'd like to make a story for the show, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com. In our next story, Xiang shares her experience as a trans woman in China. And a warning: this story includes descriptions of transphobia, suicide, and sexual assault. Please listen with care.
My name is Xiang Li. I'm from Northeast China. I'm a transgender woman. At an earlier time, when I was three or four years old, I would put the bed sheet on top of my head and imagine it as long hair and feel happy when it floated up behind me as I walked. As a transgender girl and growing up in the Northeast China, a region that places great emphasis on the masculinity and variety of boys, Xiangli has a natural innate fear of the gender atmosphere in Northeast China. Xiangli says she grew up with school bullying. You can imagine that when you speak, there is a sudden silence around you, like no one hears you, no response. It just felt like time and space stood still at that moment, and I was overwhelmed. To be honest, there wasn't a moment where I wasn't bullied in that environment. When I went to the bathroom, the boys forced me to the corner and directly stripped me off my pants, while also ridiculing and mocking me verbally. And school wasn't the only place that Xiangli experienced bullying. I was so devastated by this bullying experience that I chose to drop out of junior high school before I finished. And I was beaten up by my dad for it. When I was 17, because I didn't look like a boy, my father sent me to the army to train me for manhood. Those three months in the army were the darkest moment of my life. Because of the non-acceptance and the malice of people around her, Xiangli also experienced struggles and developed the idea of giving up being herself. After I decided to return to school, I decided to cut my hair short and began to wear some very boyish clothes. Deliberately speak in a coarse tone of voice and deliberately do this disguise. But I knew this was not my true self, so it was very painful. That's when Xiangli decided to have gender reassignment surgery, and her parents' reaction was beyond her expectations. My dad picked up the phone. I want to have a gender reassignment surgery. I told him. His reaction was surprisingly calm. He just said, "I'm afraid this will happen. I'm afraid this will happen. I'm afraid this will happen." He said three times in a row. Then, less than five minutes later, my dad sent me a video of my mom already lying on the floor, convulsing and foaming at the mouth. I was really scared because my mom has heart disease. I was crying uncontrollably. After Xiangli confided to her parents, they suspected that she had some kind of disease and took her to see a psychiatrist and a psychologist. In my position, I was willing to explore the matter with my parents, and I wasn't going to resist strongly. But at that time, I was in the hospital. I witnessed a transgender girl jump to her death because of her parents' objection. According to the 2017 China Transgender Community Survival Status Survey report, among the 2016 survey respondents, up to 62.5% had experienced depression, 21.2% had self-harm behavior, and 12.7% had suicidal behavior. Many transgender people in China undergo conversion therapy. Xiangli said, "Many of people locked away in monasteries and subjected to electric shock treatment." Luckily, Xiangli was able to go ahead with the surgery, and eventually, seeing her transition into a woman, her family was able to accept her gender identity.
I had mixed feelings after the surgery, including the joy of achieving my wish, the anxiety about the unknown life in the future, and the excitement of eagerness to share with others. And I am happy in my relationship life now. I'm still dating the transgender boy I met at the hospital during the surgery. According to statistics, there are more than four million transgender people in China, and their attempts to break gender norms or seek physical changes are often not understood by the general public and are even considered pathological by some people. Not everyone can finally get happiness like Xiang Li. The change of the environment needs our efforts. If they can't achieve tolerance for this community, I hope at least don't hurt us, don't prevent us from breaking the gender prejudice. That story was produced by Xing Meng. Mel Chun was the supervising producer. If you need support, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14, and for LGBT plus specific support, you can call QLife on 1800 184 527. Or if you'd rather chat online, head to qlife.org.au. In our next story, after studying in Macau, June grapples with her political and cultural beliefs. I have found a balance between being a democratic supporter and my Chinese identity, which is a lot like the Macau city. Jun Tan was born in Macau a year before the handover to China in 1999. Before she was 13, Tan lived with her parents in mainland China and then returned to Macau for education. She says she grew up witnessing the change in Macau's political environment under the one country, two systems. I think the young generation of Macau people, they are politically indifferent. The Macau national security law has been implemented for many years. People already get used to not discussing politicals, like we don't even have the right to protect under the law. One country, two systems is a Chinese constitutional principle describing the governance of Hong Kong and Macau. This principle suggests that there would be only one China, but Hong Kong and Macau could retain their economic and political system for 50 years after Britain and Portugal surrendered control of the territory to Beijing in 1997 and 1999. But in recent years, many people believe that this principle is already under threat. It's lunchtime. Tan and I are sitting at a cafe next to a high school in Macau Central District, where she has studied for three years. Tan believes the coexistence of Western culture and Chinese communist ideology can be observed in the Macau primary and middle schools. In Macau, we have two different types of schools, red schools and religious schools. The educational design of the red school, of course, follows the political direction of the CCP. I was studying red school too. Unlike red schools, church schools teach in Portuguese and English. They don't have the Chinese verb in their school. 
After lunchtime, Tang drove me to the Macau Legislative Council, which is only a few kilometers away from her high school. The influence of the pro-democracy camp in Macau is very limited. The pro-democracy camp is a political alignment in Macau that supports increased democracy. They and their supporters embrace liberal values such as rule of law, human rights, civil liberties, and social justice. It looks like the democracy camp cannot avoid being suppressed by the Chinese government, even though they were very low-key. Last year, the last two democracy camp members of the Legislative Assembly were also disqualified. I feel very disappointed. From outside the Legislative Council, we can see Hong Kong Zhuhan Macau Bridge. This bridge is the longest sea crossing in the world, which opened in 2018, connect Hong Kong Macau to Pahang Delta region of mainland China. I live in the Pearl River Delta region of China before middle school. This region is nearby Hong Kong and Macau. The Pearl River Delta region's culture has been affected by Hong Kong and Macau a lot. Tan says that as she returned to Macau to study in 2011, she had more opportunity to learn about democracy. But the more she was influenced by the liberalism and democracy, her political views became more difficult for her parents and Chinese friends to accept. When I discuss politics with my Chinese friend, I can feel that we look at democracy very different. I can obviously see that they have been infected by the Chinese social media a lot. They never realized that what they say on social media is censored and controlled by the government. In fact, I feel like my parents' views on my political stance were also influenced by social media. They recently accused me that I was poisoned by Western political text and information. I asked Tan whether she thinks the two system and democracy still exist in Macau today. I think one country, two systems is quite successful in Macau. At least, most people in Macau are very satisfied with their current life. But it should allow more than one political party exist. The government should allow different voice. Although Tan has broken the family traditions of being a communist supporter, in my conversation with her, I found Tan likes to identify herself as a Chinese, but not a Macau citizen or Macau Chinese. It is not very usual in Macau's young generation. What Tan wants to get rid of is not her identity as a Chinese, but the inherent impression that people who come from a pro-communist background are always conservative and anti-liberalism. That story was produced by Ji Xing Zhang. Mao Chun was the supervising producer. We teach kids that lying is bad, but as adults, lying becomes much more frequent. Is this a problem or a necessary evil? In our final story, Sean investigates the concept of pro-social lying. Can you think of a time it would be more nice to tell a little bit of a lie than tell someone the truth?、Mm, no. Really? Not even a little white lie. So you should never lie. You think? No, never, never. This is Arthur. He's five years old and no fan of lying. And can you blame him? We're told from birth that lying is wrong, that it's malicious and self-serving. An evil sin in almost every religion, but as anyone who's ever complimented their friend on their hideous new outfit would know, 
Sometimes honesty is not the best policy. So could lying perhaps be good? So I define pro-social lies as false statements that are made with the intention of misleading and benefiting others. This is Dr. Matt Lapoli, a researcher and social scientist who studies pro-social behavior. People sometimes tell lies with good intentions when they perceive uh, that doing so can prevent unnecessary harm to others. This all begins when we're about four years old and is seen as a crucial milestone for our cognitive development. As we begin to understand the mental states of others and gain empathy, we also figure out how to deceive people, both for our own gain and theirs. It seems to emerge around the time that executive functions start to blossom because if, if you think about it, it requires some complex thinking to tell a, a pro-social lie because you need to first understand that you have information that other people don't. And you also have to infer that doing so is going to make them feel better or to help them in some way. While on one hand, we're told that lying's bad, it becomes clear pretty early that brutal honesty is not much better. Arthur's mom, Jenna, says this is something her three-year-old Patty is yet to fully grasp. We were in a doctor's surgery and, and Patty noticed a lady who came in and the lady was um, a bigger lady and so he, he pointed that out on a number of occasions. But then, yeah, there is that balance of it not hurting someone's feelings by being too honest. Patty's, let's say, forthrightness shows exactly why pro-social lying is closely associated with emotions like empathy and compassion. But while it's one thing lying to a stranger, how about when it comes to our most intimate relationships? Surely lying to our romantic partners is bad because honesty is sacred, right? Ava and I have been dating for a long time, and so I reckon deep down I possibly know she's kind of lying to me as well, but I'm okay to be actively lied to. This is Bonner. Her and Ava have been going out for about three years. Their fondness for deception might sound strange, but it turns out that less than a third of us think that complete honesty is critical for a good relationship. Ava admitted the time she lied the most was when she felt there was nothing Bonner could do about a situation. Like when you made a bunch of purchases for your kitchen that like I wouldn't have made, mm. but you'd already done it. So there's no point yeah. in me saying, oh, that's a big amount of money to spend on a cup. I'm just like, nice cups, because it's just not useful. I just realized the neighbors probably think we're in couples therapy. <laughs> Dr. Lapoli says in these situations, where there's no instrumental value to honesty, would actually prefer being lied to. His research has even shown that pro-social lying can increase what's known as benevolence-based trust between us. But before you go around lovingly lying to your other halves, you better be sure that it's actually going to help them. When there is certainty about the consequences, when the lie has clear benefits over honesty, people are okay being lied to. In fact, they prefer it. But when it's not clear, then people actually hate being lied to. With all these benefits of pro-social lying, I was reminded again of young Arthur. He said he would never, ever, ever lie. And I wondered how he would fare in a world where everyone from strangers to loved ones expected, even encouraged us to do so. But then, as we were wrapping up our chat together, I finally noticed it. Did you have a, was this fun? Wow, 
boring to you. No, not to me, but maybe it was to you. But can we talk about Kamolgis? I didn't know what Kamolgis were, but I could tell by his unconvincing tone and unsubtle change of topic that he'd lied. And he'd done so for my benefit. He'd lied pro-socially. That story was produced by Sean Bruce. Daniel Simo was the supervising producer. All the Best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to Elders past and present. All the Best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonarong lands and 8CCC on Arunda and Warramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mel Chun. Emma Pham and Anusha Rana are our social media producers and Lydia Yosefova is our community and events coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and were made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can listen back to our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Danny Stewart. Thanks for listening.